ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcast everywhere. Acast.com. Hey there, listeners. I'm Jonathan Tepperman, the editor at large of Foreign Policy Magazine. Welcome to FP Playlist, a podcast where each week we recommend another podcast from somewhere around the world, talk to its creator, and play you an episode we think is especially good. This week, we're featuring a podcast called Why It Matters from the Council on Foreign Relations, the New York and Washington-based think tank, a place that I used to work before I came over to FP. I was the managing editor of Foreign Affairs, which is the in-house publication at CFR. I really like the show Why It Matters, not just because it's a chance to hear from former colleagues, but also because at its core, it's a foreign policy show that doesn't sound like a foreign policy show both in its approach to topics and to its interviews. Not that there's anything wrong with a foreign policy show that does sound like a foreign policy show, but uh, the variety is interesting. And what I particularly respect about uh, why it matters is the way they bring in non-core topics, non-traditional international relations topics, and show that they are nonetheless critical to global issues as well. Why It Matters is hosted and produced by Gabrielle Sierra, Gabrielle, hey, it's great talking to you. Let me start by asking you how you think of the show. What do you think of as your mission? Yeah, I mean, the premise of the show really is to expose a wide audience to, you know, a variety of really important foreign policy issues. And, you know, to just explain why an issue that can feel really far away can and will affect us at home, regardless of where home may be. So my co-creators and I actually all joined the council from backgrounds that were more media focused and didn't specifically... What was your background? I was an arts and culture journalist for about 10 years. So my history is in interviewing artists and musicians and covering music festivals and gallery openings. So I think that path really motivated me and us in general to want to create something that was made for listeners who, like us, had an interest in these topics but weren't super read in and, you know, might feel intimidated or even left out of these big global conversations. Mm. And I think that's what we set out to do with Why It Matters. And, you know, with that, our episodes feature, you know, at least two guests on each topic, whether they're journalists or professors or, you know, involved in the story themselves. And I ask them very basic questions. And the idea is that we're setting people up with this issue and then allowing them to 
go deeper into it, look things up and, and really dive in or just have an interesting conversation about it in a bar or I guess in this case mm-hmm. outside of a bar or over Zoom <laughs> with their friends and sort of share this information, not even realizing that they were diving into the world of, you know, foreign policy or international relations. I think that's really smart and ends up working well on the show because you, you I mean, you're obviously not a classic policy wonk, but that's perfect yes. <laughs> because it allows you to play the role of the of a proxy or a Sherpa for the audience who are also not policy wonks. And you ask the questions that they would ask. Totally. Exactly. It's not in the weeds. And, you know, sometimes I have to almost swallow my pride at not being a policy Mm -hmm. wonk and be like, all right, I'm going to ask you a super basic question. And, you know, sometimes the guests even take a beat because they haven't been asked such, you know, basic things in a while. But I think it's great because I I sit there and I I try to think of what would my friends ask? What would I ask if I met this person at a dinner party and I didn't know the topic, but I was super interested? And I think you're totally right that it serves that purpose of, you know, introducing people to something and not assuming any prior knowledge. So that actually also gives us a good segue into my next question, which has to do with the the episode itself. Mm -hmm. Um, because that episode uh, on solar geoengineering, a subject I knew nothing about and so found totally fascinating. Um, let's just start with a quick primer from you um, in a line or two on what the hell solar geoengineering actually is. Yeah. So the summary for this one is that, you know, as climate change accelerates, there are scientists who are researching ways to alter our climate to slow down warming. And in this episode, we explain this process, which is called solar geoengineering and the risks that accompany it. So one of the things we discuss is this idea of, you know, flying an airplane up into the stratosphere and releasing particles to block sunlight. Now, what I love about the topic, um, one moment you're talking about emitting particles into the atmosphere, releasing particles into the atmosphere. The next thing, you're imagining a battle between Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, we're talking about common actor problems, global free riders, and thermonuclear war, these like core IR topics. Mm -hmm. Um, Is this something you try to do for every episode? That is, take a topic that may not be a classic CFR issue and make it into one or explain how it actually is? Yeah, I mean, since we're bi-weekly, we do aim to have our topics be evergreen, but tied to issues that still feel or are very current. Um, you know, we're jotting all these ideas down and then throwing spaghetti at a whiteboard and seeing what sticks. But yeah, a lot of it is that we want to cover things that may seem kind of, you know, uh, a little a little wacky or something, you know, with like a little bit of a fun element that people aren't covering as much. I think our fast fashion episode is another one of those. You know, you don't see mm-hmm. those things being covered when we talk about climate, but they are important and they're another way into the story. And I think that this podcast does let us do that, you know, cover those topics that maybe weren't presented in like the usual meeting lineup or in, you know, an issue of foreign affairs. So H&M is destroying the planet? Uh, Yeah, yeah. It's shocking, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's too bad. Um, The other thing I really liked about this, this topic, by the way, geoengineering, is there's an aspect to it which you get into in the discussions um, uh, that has to do with the fact that even raising it is taboo and mm-hmm. it feels 
um, amongst environmental environment environmental circles, especially transgressive, a little bit naughty, even to be um, discussing this. You explain why that is. I mean, look, the idea of trying to solve something without getting to the root cause is something that's really scary to people. I mean, it you know, I think uh, David Keith, one of our guests on the episode, called it or uh, called it a um, you know a painkiller. Like you're 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 solving you're an, an opioid, an no opioid less, right? exactly. Like you're trying to alleviate a pain without finding the root cause. And people are afraid that if we say don't worry about it, we fixed it, people are just going to keep pumping fossil fuels into the air, into the atmosphere. Mm. We're still going to keep doing this stuff without ever assessing why we're in this situation in the first place. And so opening this. Sort of Pandora's box, showing what's possible, letting people start to think like they can relax because we're going to solve it in the future is dangerous. And I think that's the biggest thing that you'll hear from scientists, even the people who are pushing it, you know, or saying that it's a possibility on this episode. Right. Um, you've told us a bit about how you pick your topics. Let me ask you how you find the best guests. Um, and I'm particularly interested in this because this is something that every journalist struggles with throughout their career. You always want to find not just somebody knowledgeable on your subject, but the person who's the best mm -hmm. and is going to give you the best quotes, which is not necessarily the same. When it comes to audio, you right. then have this added challenge of finding somebody who can speak in sound bites and sounds good on the microphone. How do you do that? And is there a lot of trial and error involved with... Do you find occasionally you book a guest who sounds good on paper but doesn't end up sounding so good on the microphone? Yes, absolutely. You know? Um, and then what do you do? Yeah. You just pretend it never happened. No. <laughs> you, you know, you, you say that it's gone in another direction. I mean, I've learned in this process that producing and, and doing all this uh, podcast and audio stuff, it can be a little cutthroat in that way. You know, you're looking for people who not only are experts on their topics, but they also can give you a, a good sound bite, like you said. And, yep. and uh, you know, even with, with the magic of, of editing, it can be hard when someone's not really uh, a great speaker. So that's been sure. a process for sure. I mean, you know, pre-interviewing is, is key. Um, and, you know, another thing we look for is just we're trying not to look for the first person that's out there the most. Like, of course, those people are great. And look, and if we can get them, that's great. Then maybe for our second or third guests, we're looking for people who are experts in the field but might not have as much exposure. Um, and of course, these people are still being vetted the mm. same way. But I like to think that we take a little bit more time to try to find diverse voices coming from different publications, different backgrounds, different ages, different, you know, everything that would contribute to a more well-rounded conversation. I think we do sometimes wind up in IR in a room where uh, you're looking at a lot of people who are the same uh, come from the same backgrounds, same same uh, age sure. groups, same education. And, you know, I think it's super important that if we're going to have open conversations, especially about something like geoengineering that will alter our entire world, you need a lot of voices there. And I would like to think that part of the podcasting process is finding people who can speak to all that because then you have a diverse array of opinions. And, right. you know, when we're talking global conversations, it's really important. So that's been part of our mission, too. Well, I think you're great. More power to you. Um, Gabrielle Sierra, be well. Be well. Thanks so much. Here now is the Why It Matters episode titled Dimming the Sky, 
originally released in February of 2020. It sounds like something out of a movie. Thanks to a system of satellites, we can control our weather. A movie with a really big disaster. There's potential for catastrophic weather events on a global scale. A geostorm. But the idea of manipulating our climate in order to survive is a real thing. It's being developed by scientists right now, and it's called solar geoengineering. The problem is, it's risky. I'm Gabrielle Sierra, and this is Why It Matters. Today, should we dim the sky? A dire warning this morning from climate experts. A UN panel says governments around the world must take rapid action to curb rising temperatures. Earth's climate is now changing faster than at any point in the history of modern civilization. The very livability of our planet is at stake, not in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, but right now. So solar geoengineering is the idea that humans might deliberately alter the climate somehow to change the energy balance of the Earth to reduce some of the climate change that comes from accumulated carbon dioxide. It can't undo all the environmental risks of carbon dioxide. Indeed, maybe it won't even undo hardly any of them. We really don't know very well. But at best, hmm. it reduces some of them. That's David Keith. He's a professor of both engineering and public policy at Harvard. He's also one of the world's leading researchers on geoengineering. So I've had a big onstage argument with Al Gore, in fact, just a few years ago, <laughs> where he, I think his underlying position was that it was dangerous to even talk about solar geoengineering because it would distract away from emissions cuts. To me, the worst way to handle this is to keep the kind of taboo intact, to not bring us out in the open, to keep not talking about it, and then to get to a situation where even if we don't talk about it, some country moves forward to deployment, and then we have under crisis to make decisions both about the technology and about its governance. Today, people are starting to talk about solar geoengineering a little bit. And if you want to know what it is, you have to start at the beginning with climate change. So here goes. The most important driver of climate change is energy use, fossil fuels, coal and gas and oil. When they're burned to provide us all the energy that allows the modern world to work, they uh, put carbon dioxide in the air. And that increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere makes the atmosphere trap more heat and it tends to warm up the climate. A good way to understand this is to think of carbon in the atmosphere as a huge blanket covering the Earth. It traps in the heat. The more carbon in our atmosphere, the hotter it gets under the blanket. And that causes all sorts of changes. So the most obvious one is warming, but it will, say, melt the big ice sheets, and which can raise sea levels. It'll increase the intensity of extreme storms and, and rainfall events. All those collectively will produce a series of human and environmental impacts. And that's where solar geoengineering comes in. But how does it work? Give me just like a step-by-step -step of that process. Sure. So in a very basic way, we would want to get aerosols of some sort into the upper atmosphere, probably with specially designed planes. This is Suchi Talati. Suchi is the Research, Governance, and Public Engagement Fellow at the Union of Concerned Scientists. They would emit these aerosols, which would then stay in the atmosphere for on average of a year or two. 
And then we would need to continue that process again and again to maintain the temperature that we have reduced. So aerosol like hairspray? Basically, but a different <laughs> chemical compound. Okay, so these planes would fly up super high, release a chemical compound that would then make a cloud? Essentially, but more kind of a dispersed layer mm-hmm. that would kind of cover the whole globe. And that would then do what? And so that layer would reflect sunlight. The idea here is that when we bounce sunlight back into space, we reduce the amount of incoming heat. So you'd have to keep doing this over and over. You'd have to keep doing this. Has this been tested? No, this has not been tested. The only test we have is a natural analog of a volcano. So the most recent volcano that exploded that got aerosols into the stratosphere was Mount Pinatubo in 1991. Mm -hmm. And we noticed that there was about a half degree of cooling that lasted for a few months. So people just looked at that and they were like, oh, let's do that. I think people were like, oh, that's really interesting. I think we should look into that further. Mm -hmm. And then that research kind of led into this space as a potential way to help cool the planet. We can't just wait for volcanoes to erupt. So scientists are trying to figure out synthetic ways to do the same thing. And aerosols in the stratosphere are just one of the options. There are other ideas of manipulating cirrus clouds, ways that you could reduce the amount of these thin high clouds, which act as heat trappers. There are Mm -hmm. proposals to modify marine stratus clouds, the kind of low clouds you see off, say, the coast of Seattle to make them a little more reflective. And finally, at least in principle, You could imagine humanity constructing some kind of reflective shield in space between the Earth and the sun. Aside from these methods, there's another one that involves recreating woolly mammoths. Yep, you heard that right. Woolly mammoths. Another plan involves spreading sand over sea ice to keep it from melting. But the one method that's getting the most attention, and the one we're talking about today, is atmospheric aerosols. And a big part of this conversation is risk. My name's Kurt Jaimungle. And this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in Theories of Everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. So the scientific risks are not well understood. We've done a lot of modeling in this space, and there's, you know, general ideas of how it could affect precipitation or extreme weather, but it's not a robust understanding, and especially at, you know, a small enough scale for different countries to know how it might affect them. So what are the chances that messing with our climate this way will have side effects and unintended consequences? It's 100% certain that something you do at this scale <laughs> will have side effects and unintended consequences. Anyone who thinks that this is some magic fix that will perfectly reduce climate risks and work exactly the way we expect, anybody who thinks that is a nut. I think (laughs) we can do lots of research and we could learn a lot, but in the end, there will still be lots of unknowns. Are there any known risks already? Oh, lots of known risks. So it could deplete the ozone layer. It could change the circulation in the stratosphere. It could cause air pollution because we're talking about adding aerosols to the atmosphere, and we know those are pollutants. By blocking some sunlight, it could reduce crop productivity. There is a big range of risks. For each of the risks I said, 
there are now quite a few scientific papers that have begun to really look at those quantitatively. And for each of the risks I said, it looks like, based on early research, that the actual scale of those risks is pretty small compared to the benefits of reduced harms through the reduction in climate change. But I wouldn't leap the conclusion that we know that the risks are small compared to the benefits. I think we could say with confidence is there's enough reason to believe it could dramatically reduce human and environmental risks this century that it deserves serious research. So what are the chances that some regions will suffer more from the consequences of geoengineering than others? Because if someone just decides that they're going to do it, it's not just going to hover over one country. It will affect the entire world. So we know for sure there are ways that geoengineering could be done that would produce hugely unequal and destructive impacts. So, for example, Mm -hmm. if you only did it in the northern hemisphere and reflected sunlight in the northern hemisphere, put aerosols in there and none in the southern hemisphere, you would shift the band of rainfall in the tropics with big, big impacts. We know for sure that would be destructive. The evidence is that if it's done in a way that is globally uniform, where you aim to have roughly the same, what we call radiative forcing, the same kind of amount of sunlight being reflected almost everywhere, north to south, east to west. If you do that, and if you do it in a way where you're not doing too much, you're using it to take the edge off the the risk, the pain from the CO2 in the air, in that circumstance, the evidence from current models is that actually no major regions are left worse off and all regions have significantly reduced climate risk. So you just do a little bit of geoengineering, not, you know, a ton. Well, yes. (laughs) The dose makes the poison. So if you asked objectively, is geoengineering good or bad? What impacts does it have? There's no answer to that. So if you do a huge amount of it, it will for certain have big impacts. But the question is, if we do a moderate amount, using it not to drive the climate back to pre-industrial, but using it simply to reduce the total amount of climate change over this century while we bring emissions to zero and then slowly take CO2 out of the atmosphere, in that circumstance, there really is evidence it could significantly reduce climate risk. Computer models can't predict all the risks. But there's one problem that's already getting a lot of attention. Okay, so let's say we start solar geoengineering and decide we don't like it. Can we just stop anytime we want to? So termination shock, which is abruptly stopping geoengineering, Mm -hmm. is something that people are, are also extremely concerned about. So if we were, you know deploying solar geoengineering at a pretty high level and and then abruptly stop, we would see abrupt warming, really fast warming, and the impacts that come along with it. So why would termination shock be so bad? Let's imagine a scenario. Let's say the world comes together on geoengineering and we decide to do enough to stop global temperatures from rising more than two degrees. 50 years pass and the world is significantly cooler than it would have been. Now, Let's imagine that during these 50 years, we went on burning fossil fuels. All of that carbon still goes into the atmosphere. The only reason things aren't getting hotter is because we slathered on the sunblock via solar geoengineering. Well, if we stop all of a sudden, 50 years of warming could happen real fast. That means all the melting, flooding, and extinction would also happen rapidly. We'd have no time to adapt, and that would be very bad news. So it'd be accelerated. Yes. That said, though, 
the situation in which termination shock would happen is probably unlikely. Mm. So, you know, if we were to start solar geoengineering and realize that it's having some unintended harm, we could slowly turn down that temperature, right? And in the ideal world, solar geoengineering would only be happening in the context of aggressive emissions reductions, right? So it would have an end date. Mm -hmm. And so that way it would be tapered off, you know, by default. And so I think that's the ideal situation of using it. That we would reach our goal point and then slowly taper off. Right. As opposed to stopping in the middle because we've decided, you know, it's having more harm than good. Right. And stopping in the middle is not something we would ever want to do. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully that's where governance would come into play, right? And so even if it were potentially having some harms or consequences, you know, scientists and researchers, hopefully before we had deployed this, would have strategies of how to slowly reduce solar geoengineering use to where it's not as harmful so we can slowly taper off. Outside of scientific risks, I think even more dangerously potentially are the political risks. The geopolitics of geoengineering is incredibly risky, we have no idea how different countries might react to, to such a process. No one may know for certain, but there are some people who have a pretty good guess. One of those people is Gernot Wagner. He was the founding co-director of Harvard's Solar Geoengineering Research Program, and he's particularly good on the political risks. So we Skyped him. Every country on Earth has a shared interest in keeping global temperatures from rising, right? But every country also has their own interests. So I'm just curious about what type of conflicts you see rising after geoengineering gets started. Uh, should we start with outright war or should we end up there? <laughs> so there are huge, huge disagreements of where we ought to go. And yes, this is right. This is where politics comes in and this is where things get messy. So, I mean, it's kind of like two roommates who have one thermostat and one person likes it super hot and the other one likes it chillier and then they go uh, to war. Sure, except right, two roommates can usually at least, when it, you, you at least you know who to talk to, mm -hmm. right? Now, you know, scale that up by 7 billion. Right, right? just a slight change. Exactly. So, solar engineering is an extremely powerful potential technology that has lots of potential benefits, but it also comes with risks. It comes with uncertainties. And as so often, there are winners and there are losers. Well, it doesn't take much to imagine that those losers, some may in fact have, let's say, nuclear technology at their disposal, speaking of countries now, may want to stop those from trying to solar engineer to do so. So imagine the rapidly developing large Southeast Asian country that is particularly badly hit by, you know, yet another hundred year tropical cyclone and mm -hmm. basically say, we have the technology, we can do this. So now you have a country, solar engineering with the best of intentions. Sure. Now imagine, right, country A blaming country B for devastating floods or droughts or anything in between, while everyone knows that country B is in fact solar geoengineering. So you planet. mean that like a country could say, okay, we got flooded and it's your fault because you started geoengineering 
without us saying okay? For example, yes, right? Mm -hmm. And then in many ways, it, it, it won't matter whether it's true or not. It won't matter whether there's a link, scientific or otherwise, right? The wars have been started for much less. You know, another scenario, Petrostate, right? Who has every interest in the book, right? To maintain the status quo, pumping fossil fuels, you know, selling them, burning them, dumping CO2 in our atmospheric sewer, right? Vast economic interests to keep the status mm -hmm. quo. Well, imagine that country having the capacity to just pull the trigger, to go do it. Whoever controls the dial here has in fact a lot of power. Well, that's why countries do have militaries to prevent others from accumulating this kind of power. You know, cue the wars, right? Cue the conflict. Right. Worst case scenarios may well be along the lines of countries disagreeing where to set the dial. So imagine somebody trying to geoengineer to make it cooler and somebody else saying, no, 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 we like it just the way it is, right? You could imagine a scenario where someone tries to release powerful greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, trying to, in fact, warm it rapidly. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like a, definitely sounds like a movie. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it sounds like Mr. Freeze trying to make the whole world really cold and then Poison Ivy trying to make it all real warm because she just really likes that. And then what we get is just some sort of like puddly soup that we're all just really in trouble about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, frankly, right, we've had two, you know, fairly bad, but still Hollywood movies on exactly this topic already, right? <laughs> on the other hand, yeah, the screenplay writes itself. Beyond the scientific and political risks, there's another problem, one that comes down to basic human nature. To be clear, the reason that lots of really thoughtful scientists and policymakers oppose the kind of work I'm doing, oppose research and debate about this topic, is their fear that no matter what we say, the inevitable result will be that people will just decide to keep the fossil fuel party going. I mean, you know, I can totally see people being like, well, this is a great shortcut and I don't have to change my ways and things are getting better anyway. And it's really hard and it's going to be expensive. So I'll just keep doing what I'm doing and you guys just keep geoengineering. I, there's no question that impulse is out there. This is actually an argument that was used against talking about adaptation in the 90s. Um, they thought if we talked about, you know, actually building up ways to help um, address the impacts of climate change, we wouldn't actually continue trying to limit climate change itself. Mm -hmm. We've obviously moved past that, but it's still an argument here. And in some ways, you know, it's a concern. I think there are a lot of politicians and people who might view it as a silver bullet, as a quick fix, so they don't have to change industry. Mm -hmm. You know, the fossil fuel industry is incredibly entrenched. And, you know, if they view it as a way to continue business as usual and pick it up, that's that's a legitimate concern. Mm -hmm. Now that they haven't done that yet. This is not something the fossil fuel industry is involved in yet, but it's it is a concern. And so that's kind of the moral hazard argument. I know nobody studying, looking at, talking about solar geoengineering in any sort of sensible way, shape or form who doesn't go to pains to start right, every sentence or maybe you know, every paragraph at least with the demand for we have to cut CO2 emissions. There is no right. way around this, right? right? Whatever your medical analogy, solar geoengineering is not the solution, right? Solar geoengineering is 
not addressing the root cause. It's the Band-Aid. It's the painkiller. It's the opioid, right? It's the stuff that has some real nasty side effects. There is no way that it perfectly substitutes for emissions cuts. And so if you think that geoengineering is an excuse to just keep the fossil <laughs> fuel party going and keep burning fossil fuels forever and then continuously doing more solar geoengineering, that world walks us closer and closer to doom. So is it worth it? Should we do it? You know, frankly, if you ask me today, should we, you know, pull the trigger on actual geoengineering deployment tomorrow or mm -hmm. you know, next year or never, ever do it? Frankly, I would I would probably vote for never, ever doing it. Now, huh. of course, you know, that's that too is an idealized scenario, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the cat is out of the box, right? Like we can't squash this technology anymore, right? We can't, we can't pretend it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, the conversation, of course, ought to be, okay, how do we govern this potential technology? Mm -hmm. How do we govern the kind of conversations that ought to happen around this technology? How do we govern research? into mm -hmm. this technology? And frankly, how do we right, guide from a public policy perspective the kind of research that ought to happen to make a better informed decision even when that question, in fact, is on the political table? Are we going to be able to make a decision where everyone's happy? Mm -hmm. No. I, I mean, I don't even think that's possible for any decision. But we have to have as many voices at the table as possible. We have to have a more inclusive discussion. We have to have more scientists in the conversation other than scientists in the United States and Europe. We have to have more civil society organizations working on climate change at the table on this issue. You know, and we have to have just a general level of education on this topic. Most people are able to tell you in some way, what climate change is. Mm -hmm. And so they're able to make at least somewhat informed decisions when it comes to voting on issues related to it. We're nowhere near there on geoengineering. And so we need to get to that point to make sure this is a more democratic decision. So there are just so many unknowns with this. And it's a decision that will affect later generations. So is it fair for us to make this decision? That's an incredibly complicated question, and there have been a lot of ethicists looking at this topic as well. Climate change is also a way to affect future generations, and so is it our responsibility to try and address this in some way, or is it our responsibility to address this in one particular way? You know, I don't know the answers to these questions, but I think whatever decision we make, we have to do it with future generations in mind, because they're the ones who are going to maintain whatever system it is that we build. So that was the episode Dimming the Sky from the podcast Why It Matters. The show is a production of the Council on Foreign Relations and is hosted and produced by Gabrielle Sierra. And that'll do it for this week's episode of Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you want to suggest another great podcast that I should be featuring, I'm all ears. Please email me at podcast at foreignpolicy.com. We love suggestions. For more information about FP Podcasts, please check out our website, foreignpolicy.com, or join our Facebook group. Today's show was produced by Darcy Palder, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. 
Our theme music was composed by Nolan Schneider. A big thanks to Gabrielle Sierra and the Council on Foreign Relations for letting us air today's episode. I'm Jonathan Tepperman, and I'll see you back here next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>